This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's a privilege to have Ambassador of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan to the United States, Izad Ahmed Chowdhury. We just had a very interesting public discussion with my colleague, Dr. Seth Jones, talking about Pakistan, the United States, Afghanistan. Obviously, this is all in the context of, in the last several weeks, there's been a number of front-page news headlines about the U.S. relationship with Pakistan. President Trump began New Year's Day by tweeting about that we that we need to uh, strongly rethink our relationship with Pakistan. I'll, I think the tweet speaks for itself. I won't repeat it. But Ambassador, can you talk a little bit about what the reaction was to that tweet? Because I think it's because I think it's certainly in the news. And let's talk a little bit about sort of the U.S.-Pakistan security relation, because it seems as if 90 or 100 percent of our relationship to date has been a security-centric one. And so if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, thank you very much, uh, first of all, for having me here. CSI is, is a prestigious name, and it's a privilege to be with you this uh, afternoon. Uh, I enjoyed also the session uh, with you and Seth Jones, and I think it was a very uh, exciting audience. They asked all the relevant questions, so I enjoyed it. The tweet uh, that you mentioned about Pakistan that came up on the eve of the new year was received in Pakistan uh, with disappointment and surprise. Disappointment because the words that were used in that tweet do not really describe the relationship that we have. We believe that Pakistan and United States have remained partners. We have worked together and we have achieved milestones. If you do not see today Al-Qaeda, it is because Pakistan and United States work together to decimate that horrible organization, which caused 9-11 and many other fatalities in the world. So to hear the words that were used there for this relationship hurt the sentiment uh, of the people of Pakistan. Surprise because we were having conversations with the leadership of the United States uh, um, and the, the language that was being used was to find common ground to work together. I'm borrowing these words from Secretary Mattis, who had visited Pakistan, and earlier Secretary Tillerson, and our Prime Minister also had a meeting with Vice President Pence. And in all these meetings, uh, the, the, the overall atmosphere for, was constructive. Uh, and there was a desire for the, by the two countries to work together. Yes, U.S. has its own concerns. Uh, Pakistan has its own concerns. U.S. has its own interests, and Pakistan has its own interests, and there is nothing new about it. We, mm, this is a relationship just like any other relationship that the United States has uh, with any other country. And therefore, we, we think that there are mm, ways to do a better job mm, on this. You know, one of the things, Ambassador, that strikes me about the relationship is a, almost a complete lack of trust. Could you talk about this? Because I think when I talk to Americans, there's a, there's a suspension of belief almost, and it's a it's, it creates, it makes it very difficult to have a constructive dialogue when you don't have a lot of trust. And I know that it is on both sides of the relationship. Could you just react a little bit to that? I think the, uh, the level of trust has uh, gone down now, but 
when you see the totality of the relationship, those who are not convinced of the of the mutual benefit that can accrue from this relationship are taking a very, very narrow view. It is true that the trust is a casualty of a number of factors, one of which is mismatch of expectations. In Pakistan, people believe in relationships. We believe that if you are a friend, then that should take it should generate enough credits to take you through the shallow or the low periods of activity. A friend in need is regarded as a friend indeed. In the United States, the foreign policy choices are made on the basis of national interests, and real and live issues determine how the United States will make that relationship. So therefore, it's a cultural thing in a way, which has generated this mismatch of expectations. The second factor is that bulk of the relationship these days is being driven by the security agenda. Whereas the relationship was much wider in scope, but because the nature of security issues are such that the information available is limited. So people look towards their respective establishments to get information. So bulk of um, the activity uh, takes place in the absence of real information. So invisible seems to drive the real. The third issue, uh, I think, that could be a reason for, uh, which all these, by the way, need to be addressed, uh, could be because sometimes the, the relationship is, is coordinated or managed through public domain or in public domain. So the negotiations happen in a public way as opposed to behind closed doors. Exactly. We're, we're negotiating from people's talking points or press releases or press tweets. There is also a culture of strategic leaks. In the U.S.? In the U.S. Maybe it is a normal thing, uh, but the result is that when you discuss difficult issues in public domain, it becomes a bit more difficult to resolve them. Mm, there are, of course, some lobbies also which are working. So I think I have comprehensively addressed yeah. your... So, Ambassador, there's a belief that, that Pakistan is providing shelter and succor and assistance for a variety of bad actors who have safe havens in Pakistan and then are causing havoc in Afghanistan. And... Could you just react to that? You know, I think, and then there's also a sense that the civilian government of Pakistan, the democratic elected government of the government of Pakistan, sometimes says one thing, but that there are other parts of the security establishment in Pakistan that are doing something else. So if you could react to those two comments, I think they're related. Certainly. I think anyone who makes that comment uh, has not really taken into account what has happened in the last couple of years when Pakistan, through a heroic effort and a combined effort of our armed forces and security forces, backed by a national consensus, have defeated the forces of terrorism in Pakistan, the terrorists are on the run. And that includes any militants who are creating or, uh, or perpetuating or anything uh, they are doing uh, in terms of violence in Pakistan or outside. Uh, the Taliban and the Haqqanis uh, our message to them is clear and starker. 
that you are Afghans, you go to Afghanistan, we will push you to Afghanistan, you join the political mainstream there, but in no way we will ever allow you to use our territory to plan any kind of violence. Having said that, I think it is also important to see that the people of Pakistan can compare and contrast the recent achievements in Pakistan and the lack of those achievements in Afghanistan. We also feel that all our achievements could be at risk if Afghanistan is not stabilized. Therefore, we believe that instead of blaming Pakistan for the failures in Afghanistan, I think the, the best course would be for the two countries to work together to make sure the United States and Pakistan the United States and Pakistan need to work together to make sure that Afghanistan does not descend in further into chaos we have far too big stakes in the stability and peace in Afghanistan than any other country in the world and the, and for the United States too United States has invested hugely in this very long war and so therefore if the objectives of both Pakistan and United States are the same, i.e., yeah. stabilize Afghanistan, defeat the forces of terrorism. There's no reason why we should not be working together. We can have different approaches to it, but we can always sit together and reconcile those approaches because the objectives are common. Do you, could you talk a little bit about what what needs to happen in, in Afghanistan in terms of the peace process? Because I think there have been attempts, and you've been involved in helping try and broker a peace agreement, facilitate a peace process in Afghanistan. Talk a little bit about what what the contours of an agreement might look like. I think what is important is that we have to have a comprehensive political approach in Afghanistan. Just like Go back in history. Study any situation, conflict situation. The only way out has always been a political process, a comprehensive political process by which the warring factions or the conflicting factions come together to reconcile their differences, to, uh, to build together a future that is common for them. There is no military solution. We cannot have a military solution. We believe that military solution will further aggravate the flames of war. And we in Pakistan would suffer enormously. And therefore, we have been saying that, that it should be Afghan-led and Afghan-owned, a genuine, serious plan of action by Afghan government to attract all Afghan factions to this common political. Then uh, uh, there should also be a few other steps that should be taken on the sides. Uh, there should be an attempt made to... Uh, to curb the drug flourishing drug trade yes. because that is financing war activity. Some people say that it is becoming a narco state, a narco economy now. Uh, there should also be an effort made to uh, to secure the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan because we don't want bad guys to to cross border either way. Can you talk about the border security on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan? As you were talking about that earlier. Well, the border is extremely important. It is an open border. It is treacherous and difficult border, uh, but it has to be secured because there are bad guys who cross over and do bad things. And therefore, it is in the common interest of Pakistan Afghanistan and United States to secure that border. For now, Pakistan is already doing on its own um, about 800 of 2,600 kilometers border is fensible. We have started that fencing. We hope to complete it by 2022. The rest we are 
we are already working on installing about 900 posts, and between each two posts, there'll be patrols. But we think that we alone cannot do this. a huge task, and we need cooperation from the United States, from Afghan government, to secure that border. We think that it will go in a, law, a long way in addressing each other's complaints. We have complaints because there are safe havens in Afghanistan now actually created, which U.S. has also seen that they are trying to, to, to dismantle. And all our recent attacks actually have emanated from those safe havens, including that school attack where 137 children were massacred. I want to I come to that because I think when I, when I visited Pakistan three years ago, uh, what struck me was that there was a before and after this terrible attack in 2014. Talk a little bit about this, because I think this is not well understood in the United States. I think in other parts of the West, what happened this attack in 2014, because I think that was a watershed moment for Pakistan, because I think a whole series of things happened as a result of that attack in terms of the civilian government and the people of Pakistan and the military all being in very close alignment in saying that they wanted to go after terrorists. I was having a conversation with a, a large number of uh, South Asia watchers. It was a lunch and discussion. And one of them asked me that you say that there is no military solution, but did you not do yourself a military solution in North Waziristan to clear up the militants? And I reminded him that it was a long process of first building a national consensus through a series of conferences. Otherwise, no military was ready to move in because there would be resistance from the, from the, from the ground. And therefore, it took full one year for the people of Pakistan to build that consensus. We also uh, cleaned up Karachi, where these militants had holed up to provide backstopping. We cleaned up Khabar, uh, you know, Khabar 1, as, as we called it in South Waziristan, we cleaned up. And then came North Waziristan in June of 2014. We knew that there would be blowback, and we had that blowback in December of 2014 when the militants came to attack the children of the very troops who were actually fighting them. But, but we, in the end, we won. What matters is that despite all these huge sacrifices, we won. And we showed that all those who were not susceptible to political process were to be dealt through a kinetic action, and they happened. But that kinetic action would not have been successful had there not been a national consensus that terrorism and violence under any pretext is not acceptable to the people of Pakistan. So, Ambassador, there's a, I think there's a number of things that Pakistan doesn't get a lot of credit for. One is... There's been a uh, certainly. I mean, there's been terrible losses of blood and treasure since 9/11 in Pakistan, and that's something that often is overlooked. And it's, it's several several thousand Pakistani soldiers have been killed, along with I don't know the number of civilians, but many many deaths in Pakistan as part of this process. So, and so it's one of the things that I think Pakistan did not recognize. I think the other thing that's not been recognized is there was a democratically elected government in 2008. There was a peaceful transfer power to a different political party. So, they, and that, so there have been two full terms of democratically elected governments. And there has been no, inter, at least ostensibly from outside watchers, not been a coup, if I can put it that way. There's not been some sort of the military has, in essence, stayed in their barracks. There have been a number of moments where you would think the military might consider coming out of their barracks in the last 10 or so years. That, you know, for folks who follow Pakistan that more closely would say that's the case. So... So there's uh, and there's an election coming up. So I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about sort of the democratic progress in Pakistan, 
and a little bit about the election that's coming up in July of 2018. We're doing this conversation now in January of 2018, so sometime in about in about six months' time is the election. In your earlier question, you had also asked about the uh, the relations between civil and military government, yes. and I want to tell you that both they both our civil and military leadership are working in unison under the leadership of the Prime Minister of Pakistan. The democratically elected Prime Minister. The democratically elected Prime Minister of Pakistan. And and therefore, all that talk of, of dividing the two are not going to work. And that's a message that we have sent out very loud and clear. The leadership of Pakistan is convinced that the only path forward for people of Pakistan is the democratic route. And as I indicated downstairs when we were talking, that the people of Pakistan yearn the values of democracy and freedom and rule of law and justice that your people have practiced for a long time. And I think that is these common values bring my people and your people closer to each other. There is every desire in the people of Pakistan to continue this democratic process. The elections are due in, in, in summer probably July or August, and then a peaceful transfer will take place just like it happened five years ago. So we are quite optimistic. Yes, democratic processes are noisy by definition because there are different, but out of those different voices emerge the common voice, uh, which is represented by the people of Pakistan. Was, uh, you know, one of my favorite outings here is to take a tour of uh, Capitol Hill and go there through the tour, you know, tourist area, they show you a documentary which starts and ends with the words out of many, comma, one. So they say that there are different voices. It's such a huge country. And then, emerge, then emerges through this democratic process one voice. I think the same process is happening in Pakistan and we are very, very happy about the strengthening and deepening of that process. The, uh, if I'm a Pakistan, an overseas Pakistani, can I vote overseas in, in the election? Well, there has been some working on that, and I think our election co commission is still working on it. Uh, they need to figure out a number of things that must happen. Those who have registered, like me, uh, the government servants, they probably will get that, and they're also working to see... Uh, they have to bear in mind whether a, con a person is dual national, whether he has some other nationality and Pakistani nationality, and all those things, and whether uh, he's still living in the same constituency in, in which he wants to uh, uh, vote. So I think that's a work in progress. Ambassador, could you talk about the relationship between China and Pakistan? Because I think that relationship is longstanding, but there have been a number of changes that I think have larger implications for the relation with the United States, but also in the region. Indeed, China and Pakistan have maintained friendly, cordial, cooperative ties for a long time. But I always say that so have Pakistan and the United States. And uh, therefore, when people like me sit in Pakistan and argue, they say that, look, this, these two relationships both have brought considerable dividend to the people of Pakistan. Why should it be a zero-sum game? Why can't we have both relationships progressing simultaneously in a mutually reinforcing and cooperative fashion? We were a bridge to United States, yes. to China, uh, when, 40 when, years ago, and we believe that we still remain that bridge. And there are a large number of opportunities where I believe Pakistan and uh, China and Pakistan and United States can work together 
for our mutual benefit. And that's the direction we want to take this, the, these two relationships. Yeah, no, I think that's an underappreciated bit of history is that Pakistan played a critical role in the, the renewal of relations between the United States and China when Nixon and K- Kissinger and Nixon went to China. They worked in partnership through a Pakistani channel. Is that, that correct? That is absolutely correct, and we are very proud of that, and we think that we still want to remain friendly to both Pakistan and China and United States. So talk about the China-Pakistan economic quarter. What is that, and why is that important? Well, uh, the political goodwill that existed between Pakistan and China has been now translated into tangible economic cooperation through what is called China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. It is one of those uh, connectivity projects. You know, Asia for the last seven, six, seven years has been buzzing. The buzzword is connectivity in Asia. So uh, this is part of that Belt and Road Initiative that Chinese government has launched, which connects about 68 people or so, uh, 68 countries. This one is also going to connect people of Western China and people of uh, uh, Pakistan, particularly the Western part of Pakistan. It makes perfect economic sense for China to have projects which will help it develop western part of China, which was less developed than the eastern part of China. And it makes perfect economic sense to use this short, shorter route, which is only 2,000 kilometers from Gawada to Kashgar, as opposed to 13,000 uh, 13, kilometers if you go to eastern China, then take the South China Sea over into Malacca Strait and then come down to Red Sea, then it is a far longer route. So it makes perfect economic sense. But we have always believed that this project, which is a connectivity of roads and rails and optic fibers and cables and pipelines and, and, and whatever else, uh, is going to be uh, for the benefit of the entire region. It is not restricted only in benefit to people of Pakistan and Western China, but for the entire region. And we do hope that uh, that, that aspiration will come true. Talk about the, the economic performance of Pakistan. I don't think it is well known in the United States. Talk a little about some of the economic indicators because they're quite impressive, I think. Well, our economy is booming, doing well, I would say, despite all the challenges that we had. Our biggest challenge, of course, was that security situation was bad. That we have been able to overcome and we've talked about it, and that has had a salutary effect on the economy. Another factor was that we had energy shortages. And energy drives the economy. So that also we have now been able to overcome the shortages. The third factor was infrastructure. Again, we were short on that and that massive investments have gone into that. So we have created an environment, an enabling environment for our economy to grow further. We have already maintained a steady path from around 3% growth in 2013 to estimated 6% growth in, 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 2018. in 2018. And it has been steady growth all along. And we think that very soon we should be able to actually give it a, a even greater push. What, what are some, if, if you were an American company and thinking about investing in Pakistan, what would be some of the sectors you would say are big opportunities in Pakistan? I think the American companies are already present in, in, uh, in Pakistan. Um, most of them in the energy sector so far. They have invested, like supply of LNG and uh, Accelerate Energy was the Houston-based company, was the first one yeah. which built that terminal there. Uh, General Electric, I am talking about. And then Procter & Gamble and Black and & Beach. And so many companies have now taken registration there, and they are positioning themselves uh, to participate in a whole lot of activities 
in Pakistan in almost uh, all sectors. But I think so far the the sector which is leading the American investments is energy. I think about agriculture, it, it seems to me, or technology or others, as well as even you know, no one, you know, tourism has, there's all sorts of opportunities. We were talking about skiing earlier. You can go skiing in Pakistan, is that correct? Well, speaking of potential, I think agriculture, that was uh, the hallmark of Pakistan-U.S. cooperation in 50s and 60s and helped produce varieties of crops that brought a green revolution in Pakistan. So U.S. has always been favorably remembered by the people of Pakistan, even my own generation, which actually saw that handshake of the two flags on the railway bogies. And I think that's another area where cooperation is going on. We need to perhaps because uh, precision agriculture offers a tremendous potential and we would certainly like the, that to, uh, to benefit us. IT, another area where considerable amount of, because we have a youth population and that is also something which uh, I believe uh, would offer much greater potential than it, it has uh, so far done. And you are right on tourism. We have beautiful mountains uh, and many, 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 many countries are actually going to uh, sending their expeditions. We have lakes and we have five rivers. We have desert. We have five seasons. So with better law and order, I think tourism is another area which is going to uh, blossom. Talk about your relationship with India. You, you've been involved with that as well in terms of the Pakistan-India relations. Can you talk a little bit about that and how's that fit into this conversation? Well, uh, India is our eastern neighbor, large neighbor, and we believe that uh, peaceful, cooperative, good neighborly relations is the only way to go forward. But that would require engagement of the two countries. Unfortunately, the dialogue remains suspended. Uh, mainly by the Indian side because they think that they are not ready for the dialogue. They think that Pakistan uh, has some militants which are anti-India who, who are living there and who do not want good relations with, with India. And we have been telling our Indian friends that, look, Pakistan is the one which has actually fought the terrorism the evil of terrorism more than anybody else believe that when you actually suspend the dialogue uh, or whenever these two countries come together, these militants do something and you suspend the dialogue, you actually fulfill their objectives. So why not change that pattern? We keep talking and so that we isolate the space that these militants have rather than suspending the dialogue and giving them another renewed life. But we have so far not been able to convince the Indians about that there is a trend in India which in itself is a right-wing trend, Hindutva ideology, uh, and India is using a, its own high-handed approach in Kashmir and elsewhere and thinks that it can, uh, it can perhaps succeed. It's a new strategic partner with the United States. Uh, it is also, India is probably using that or in a way getting emboldened by that to think that it has carte blanche, which I don't think it has. Uh, it should not. Um, United States is not only friend of India, it's friend of Pakistan and, and it's a big power. It has had presence in, in the region and we believe that United States should be able to play a, a part which, is, which brings uh, uh, stability, uh, strategic stability to South Asia. Uh, that's what we look up to uh, in terms of our relations with your country and also with India. Talk about um, some of the changes in the society uh, in, in Pakistan. I mean, certainly there's been economic progress, infrastructure, power. These things don't get a lot of coverage in the in Western media. Do you talk about the role of women? I mean, there's been a lot of, I've met some very 
unbelievably impressive women when I was in Pakistan. Talk a little bit about the role of women in Pakistan. I think the women are leading in many ways the path of not only social development in Pakistan, but also economic development. While for economic development, you can have millions of hands, but it's the social development where you actually need women to step forward and take charge. And they are, that is what they are doing. There are a number of women who have become world icons, uh, have contributed to, to ensuring that women have equal rights and equal opportunities in Pakistan. And I think that's, that's where we are, we are headed. We are very pleased with the way economic empowerment of women is taking place. Emancipation also empowerment of economic empowerment is the, the real key for the women of Pakistan. And I think it's happening. And there are many, many, many men who are fully convinced that that's the only way to go. So they are also acting as agents of change. I, for one, have organized a large number of events thanks to my wife for uh, women empowerment in my own home because I have always believed that no nation can ever progress unless women and men work together for, for peace and progress in harmony. Been a significant number of education reforms in Pakistan. Recently, there was an article in The Economist a couple of weeks ago about there's a, I mean, Punjab, Punjab province, one of the largest, you know, 110 million people, it's one of the very large uh, place, is going through a massive basic education revolution. Could you talk about that? Education is an area which will in future lead the change in Pakistan. We still have a long way to go. We have a young population. I think more than 60% of our people are below the age of 30. Uh, it could be an enormous advantage if we handle them well. And that's, and and that's happened in the past. In the 60s, we had the demographic dividend in places like Japan or Taiwan or South Korea, or it could go the other way. Or it could go the other way if we don't handle it well. And therefore, it is extremely important area that we educate our youth and we exploit their talents. Both boys and girls. Both boys and girls. And let them contribute and build a new Pakistan that is economically developed and progressive, equitable, free, and democratic. I think that's where it is headed. So one of the things I learned when I was in Pakistan I did not know was that it's it's a it's not only sort of quite diverse in terms of geography, there are, there's a significant diversity within its people, both in terms of, and there's also religious diversity in Pakistan. Could you talk about the rights of, of different people in, in Pakistan? I'm thinking about this. There's been a number of articles about blasphemy laws, and there's been attacks of, uh, uh, on Christian communities, but other, uh, other groups. So could you talk a little bit about how the government thinks about this, both in terms of the issues of blasphemy laws but also in terms of the issues of how religious minorities are, are protected. Certainly. I think in the, one of the dividends of having democratic governments is that they want to see what matters to people. And protection and promotion of human rights is always close to the heart of any people. I, as citizen of Pakistan, will feel empowered if the human rights of ordinary Pakistanis are better protected and better promoted. And that is why there has been considerable uh, effort made by uh, the government to make sure that we subscribe and sign and ratify all the important treaties that the international community has evolved to systematically improve human rights. Um, that includes uh, 
ICCPR, ICESCR, uh, uh, CAT, which is against torture, uh, CEDAW uh, for uh, for women empowerment, uh, children, and 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 a whole lot CRC. All these have been done, and then Pakistan is a very active player in the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, where every four years or so we present what is called UPR, which is Universal Periodic Review, where every nation comes and gives its stack room. So we presented our first one uh, in, uh, in 2008. Uh, our first UPR, we received feedback of 88 recommendations. We went back four years down the line. We came back to show to them how we have implemented all these uh, 88 recommendations. Then we made a good case. We received another set of recommendations. We went back, and I think in 2017, we are presenting the third review. This is, this is how systematically we, are. we have established a Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, independent uh, Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. We have, of course, um, a very active women uh, Human Rights Commission for the rights of women. We have Children Commission. We have Commission for the Rights of the Minorities. Actually, I don't like to use the word minorities because I believe that all citizens of Pakistan have equal rights equal under rights, the Constitution yeah. of Pakistan. But nevertheless, people of all faith, all caste, creed should get equal opportunity and equal rights. Uh, you talked about blasphemy. Blasphemy is a law which is available and present in the laws of nearly every country, has been. But it's not the blasphemy. You, When you revere or respect the holy uh, personalities of any faith, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the misuse of that law which has received criticism uh, because there are people who would like to misuse that to settle their own personal scores. And bulk of the victims uh, for the misuse of that are Muslims, actually, not Christians or any others. But we want to stop that, that misuse. I think there is an active uh, movement going on to, uh, to work in that direction. So I think Pakistan is moving socially also in a direction which was ordained to us by the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, uh, who said uh, on 11th of August to the Constituent Assembly of Pakistan in 1947, the assembly which was making to constitution that, that you are equal citizens of the state, you are free to go to your temples, you're free to go to your mosque, that has nothing to do with the business of the state, and that you all equal uh, in the eyes of the state. So I think that's the kind of society that is being built as required by our, uh, our uh, founder, but also by the constitution of Pakistan, where every citizen, regardless of his gender, caste, creed, or faith, should receive equal opportunities and equal rights. Ambassador, just, just in closing, could you talk about what your hopes are? You've been here now, I guess, about a little less than a year now. I mean, a year. Been here uh, a year. I'll be completing in March a year. Yeah. What, what are your hopes of your time here? What do you want to accomplish in your time here? And, what are, and then could you talk a little bit about a more functional relationship between the United States and Pakistan look like? Well, I would be very pleased with my effort if I am able to uh, bring this relationship back to where it has always been, uh, a strong, cooperative, mutually respectful and mutually beneficial relationship. If that happens, if I can make any progress, any contribution, and why I say that is because it's a personal passion also. <laughs> I have been, this is my fourth time in this country. I, I did my master's. 
Uh, I lived in New York. This was my second time in this embassy. My children received their education here. And um, we know the values that United States stands for. And I know the values that my own people actually yearn and cherish. So it is only a natural alliance between Pakistan and United States. And if, we, if I can make any modest contribution in keeping these two countries together and actually promoting cooperation, I'd be one happy man. <laughs> I agree with you, and I, I, I very much hope that you're going to accomplish that, and I'm, an opt I'm always an optimistic person, so I, I'm, and knowing how capable you are, I, I think you're going to be able to make some progress, Ambassador, I really do. Talk about, just leave for us the future, what does, what does, a, what does a partnership between the U.S. and Pakistan look like, and what are your hopes for, what is, what do, what are your, what, what does Pakistan, you know, what is, and, and how, how does, you know, what is, just talk a little bit about that. I briefly touched it when mm -hmm. we were downstairs that there are two levels at which com the relationship between the United States and Pakistan operates. One is G2G, government to government, and the other is P2P, which is people to people. While the government to government relationship has oscillated ups and downs, uh, depending on uh, what brought us together or what diverged us, uh, but the people, of people to people relationship has always continued. United States still remains an important destination for the students of Pakistan. People take pride in studying and benefiting from the uh, <clears throat> enormously innovative you know, education sector of the United States. Uh, United States is still home to thousands of Pakistani physicians. I indicated to you the IT sector, the agriculturists, and so many. I mean, these relationships have continued over, over the time, regardless of where the G2G relationship stands. And I do hope that in months ahead, uh, we'll be able to focus on whole lot that uh, unites us rather than focusing all the time on what does not unite us. Ambassador Chaudhary, I really hope you come back and we hope we hope to have an ongoing dialogue with you in the on tw over 2018. You're very, very kind, Dan, and thank you for your uh, uh, friendship with my country, for your interest in my country, and we deeply value um, the contribution of CIS in promoting um, greater awareness and enlightenment and enlightenment for better relations between Pakistan and United States. Thanks, Ambassador. Thank you very much.